Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are tuning in to Hello Latino. Today, you're going to meet somebody that's real special to me and my family. His name is Idrin Hernandez. He is a dreamer from San Diego, California. Arriving to the United States at the age of six, he faced and defeated hella barriers and ultimately graduated from San Diego State University. Currently, Idrin is a manager at an immigration law firm and an activist in the DACA movement. He has been widely interviewed by local, national, international media outlets. He served as the guest editor for The Guardian, and he has helped shape the narrative about border dreamers, deepening an understanding of what it means to live in a border region as a dreamer. In this episode, he not only tells us about his story and journey, but he educates us on the ever-changing immigration system. So take a deep breath, y'all, because y'all about to learn today. Let's get into it. Irving, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, welcome to Hello Latino. I am excited for a lot of reasons. I think the first is because you're a big part of my parents' immigration journey and and everything that they're going through right now. And also you yourself have a story to tell about DACA immigration, working in that space. And I think you can educate a lot of the folks here um, who are listening on all the things immigration because it affects all of us all the time. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning, Odalis. Thank you for having me. And no, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, knowing your family, knowing you. And, you know, yeah, I have a lot to say, <laughs> a lot to <laughs> say about the DACA movement, just general activism, but appreciate you having me in your space and happy to be here. Yes. All right. Well, let's get started with the first question. How do you identify Edving and why? So I identify as a first-generation immigrant. Even though I have DACA status, I still see myself as undocumented because DACA, for me, it's truly just a half measure. It's just a work permit and a two-year prevention from being you know, deported. Uh, so it's not really legal permanent resident status. It's not citizenship. I grew up Catholic, you know, very high family values. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's been a journey and I can definitely tell you that the key to activism is knowing yourself, knowing who you truly are, because the forces at play are, are strong, are well-funded and you will need, you will be tested. Oh, well, let's talk about who you are, your journey, your story. Can you tell us about your immigration story and and we can start there like paint the picture of what that story looked like yeah of course so i'm originally from acapulco guerrero mexico born in 94 getting to my 30s soon so <laughs> anyways you know i lived with my parents my dad came to the u.s at the when i was three years old he liked what this country had to offer 
and he wanted a family here. So in 2000, my, my mom, my sister and I came to the United States and we settled here in San Diego. So I've been in the U.S. since the age of six here in the United States. You know, I've always been told I don't have status. As a kid, you really don't know what it is to not have status or the feeling that comes from that until around high school when, you know, hey, adulthood, hey, your future's coming up. And then you realize, oh, I need maybe a social to do these things. Hey, maybe I need papers to travel beyond, you know, the checkpoints. And so that's when it truly, truly settled in what it meant to be undocumented. And it's something that, you know, in certain discussions I've had with other groups, other organizations, you know, there are some parallels. The first time I told someone I was undocumented, I couldn't even uh, say the words. It, mm -hmm. it was hard for me to say it. And I ended up coming into tears. And it's just something that I was, I, I never truly confronted and told others. And, you know, someone drew a parallel. It's like, well, it's sometimes when someone's like coming out in a different, you know, orientation. And it's like, well, you're right. It's like you, you're finally being confronted with this untangible thing that, you know, you're subjected to. So, you know, I in high school, I started telling more and more people, hey, I'm undocumented, trying to get that strength and trying to prepare myself for, you know, the future. I mean, fortunately, DACA came into my life in a point where I had just recently graduated in 2012, graduated top of my class. I was heading to San Diego State. I was already accepted for um, aerospace engineering. And, you know, I just didn't know how I was going to pay for it. And so DACA came into my life at the right time where I was able to get my work permit, was able to get my social, was able to get this protection. And I was able to pay for my education along with the help of my parents. And they truly have played a, a great role in my life. I mean, just I, I truly didn't know what DACA was, but my mom was. She heard it on the news. <laughs> she was taking me to forums. And, you know, because of her, because of their sacrifice, I, I was able to get this benefit in a needed time. I mean, uh, it's not been easy. It never is. I graduated in 2017 from San Diego State as an aerospace engineer. Since I got my DACA, I knew I owed this, not just to my parents, but to someone else. I wanted to know who that someone else was, who fought for it. And it turns out that this whole topic of the DREAM Act of legalizing immigration youth uh, has been present since the early 2000s. And it's been, I would say, chingones and chingonas like out there fighting, knowing that they don't have a protection themselves and helping us get this protection, not just for them, but for everybody else. So I knew right when I got my DACA, I needed to put my part in, you know, my two cents into this. And that's how you found law and immigration and activism. Right. So it's, you know, I, I think nothing is by coincidence. So I had submitted my paperwork uh, in 2012 in church. We had this priest friend who said, hey, I know this this person. She works at this law firm and, you know, maybe she can orientate you a bit more. And so by that time, I had already submitted my paperwork. They did their presentation at the end. You know, we spoke a bit and, you know, I was offered my first job. It's like, hey, you you seem like, you know, you you know, you know what you're talking about. And, you know, I need an assistant, you know, just 
very basic things. And, you know, I knew I needed a job to pay for my education. I didn't want my parents to take the the full force of what college tuition <laughs> really means. So that's how I, I um, first met my current employer. And I've they've just been able to provide this environment for me to just continue growing, even if, you know, I'm not practicing my my degree. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is a talk about whether you have a certain degree or not, you end up not always working in that field. It's like I have my degree and I don't work in that field now, which I think is very important to also mention and call out for anyone who's listening. It's okay if your path kind of goes the way that it goes. But I want to ask you, Ida, being like, you said it wasn't easy being DACA. Like, can you one, educate us on what DACA really means? I think we see it on the outside. I think a lot of us are maybe like just learning about it because, you know, one thing that I I had had a conversation with someone and they were, <laughs> this is a long time ago. I'm not, I'm not, that person's not in my life anymore, but they were like, I don't get this immigration stuff. Like, just go get your citizenship. And I'm like, Oh, it is not that easy. And as someone who saw all of my siblings and my parents go through this process, like it is an expensive, lengthy heart, like, like heart, what is it? Heart wrenching. Like it's, it's just like, it's a hard process and it's expensive. Something that a lot of immigrants don't have. And it was a conversation where I had to educate the person. Like, you know, DACA is new. DACA is very new compared to my siblings who came here in the early 2000s and the 90s, early 2000s, and they didn't have, they didn't have DACA. They didn't have something to help them get into those institutions or college or et cetera. So I was very lucky and fortunate that I had FAFSA and scholarships and I had, was born here and that's, that there's a lot of privilege in that. But can you talk to us about what DACA really looks like and what it really means and how it affects, how it affected you? Yeah, so most of these immigration programs, most of these immigration, you know, cases are very compounded issues. It's not just like, hey, just follow the law and you'll get this magical paper that will open the doors to everything. I mean, DACA, it's uh, it's deferred action for childhood arrivals. It truly is deferred action. They're kicking the, the bucket down the road. It leads to nothing. It's similar to the TPS, a temporary protective protection status. It's just something very temporary, doesn't lead to anything. And, you know, the, the fight for DACA has been, hey, we want a pathway for citizenship. So you got to look at both the immigration code, immigration law, and it's, it's a very interesting, interesting kind of path down history road because, you know, a lot uh, the, the main law that's affecting pretty much all immigrants is IRA-IRA, established in 96, implemented in 97 by Bill Clinton his administration. And that's pretty much where we're all being affected, where just the simple fact that you're here is against the law. And we're seeing it now. Not many people can say in their country, you know, some, you know, risk their lives, get mutilated on trains, you know, are just subjected to the highest level of cruelty. Yet that is their option versus staying in their country. And so, you know, when it comes to DACA, there's a lot of interesting things. And I agree with what you said. And I've heard that many times why, hey, you're, you're, you're a swell guy, you know, you, you're well-educated. Why don't you just get papers? Well, I wish it were that easy. <laughs> and the thing I try to do when it comes to the DACA uh, program is letting them know that 
although I am one of the spokespersons, I'm not fighting just for, hey, you need to have a degree, you need to have this. No, it's to ensure that there's a path pathway for all of us. For me, it's a human rights issue having this a pathway to citizenship because I see the U.S. as my only home, just as hundreds of thousands, millions of people here in the U.S. And getting that piece of paper is an acknowledgement of my presence. It's an acknowledgement of my contributions to this country, and it fully allows me to be free. I mean, one of the things many of these temporary programs face is the inability to actually actually leave the United States. Even though we consider this our home, we can't just forget that we have ties to our countries. We can't forget that we have beloved family members that need us at least to see us once. I mean, heck, during COVID, I, I lost several family members and all I could do is just watch them pass away through a phone. So it's, you know, it's that fight for all of these programs, all of these people to, you know, truly be seen as equals, not better, not less, as equals. So again, DACA, all of these immigration programs are a compound issue. I have seen just the lack of knowledge in our representatives as well, both at the local, state, and federal level as to what it means to be undocumented, what it means for the immigrant community and what we want. I mean, I have several stories from my trips to D.C. where it's like, dear God, like these people live in a bubble. They, they don't know what's happening in the border region. And yet these people are deciding uh, our future. So truly, it's, um, it, it's a complicated issue. And, you know, for me, I, I don't mind sitting down and, and telling people. And I, you know, what I... The, the reason I feel very comfortable and, you know, sitting in, in this space with you is this format is meant to be very detailed orientated. I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of channels here. I've even written some, some pieces with the San Diego Union Tribune, with The Guardian. And, you know, there's a lot of editing. You know, there's a lot of sound bites. And I can go into, you know, this issue as it should be, you know, complicated, detailed issue. And all they'll just clip is, yeah, I, I don't agree with this administration. And that's all they would use. So, you know, even then, it's, it's you know, tough. Oh, yeah, this is, this is an open space to talk about all of it. And I want to ask you, because everyone remembers that moment in, in 2020 where there was this huge fear of, of DACA recipients feeling like what's going to happen like this president's here he doesn't like us he doesn't want us like how do we maintain our daca like rights and stay here is and this this may seem like a like just like a straightforward question but is daca safe like is it really safe for those who are undocumented and i, I just want to i want to i want to talk about that and unpack it a little bit more no, no, of course. It is not safe. It has never been safe. It's uh, very, very temporary. So for starters, when then Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded DACA, in, I think in 2017, current applicants were, were protected. They could renew. But it was the issue for me, it was those new applicants. You know, thinking back, you know, I, I was barely, you know, turning 18 then. 
I, I didn't know what my future entailed. I didn't have any protections. What would have happened to Irving then if he didn't have DACA? Well, this is what's currently happening to this generation of youth, youth back then in 2017 that, you know, were, were forced to, you know, hide under the shadows again. For me, that was unacceptable. It was an emergency at that moment. But ultimately, um, we've seen the, the, the DACA case go up and down courts. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has ruled it to be unconstitutional. So DACA is on its way out. And it's literally at the whim of the, um, the federal judge in Texas to say when the program ends. So currently, the DACA program, can uh, current applicants can continue to renew. They can request what's called advanced parole, so to get a document to leave the country for a medical, personal medical, humanitarian reason, educational, and business reason. But at any moment, it can end. What we've tried to have these lawmakers know is that to not codify DACA, to not codify any of these temporary programs, because, you know, that takes away from the urgency that is, you know, hey, we want to legalize here in the United States. So codifying these programs is not an option for us. And from day one, we haven't fought to keep DACA. We have fought to get a better program, a better program that would lead into citizenship status. What's going to happen of all like for other DACA recipients currently when that program ends? I mean, for me, it's it's just rallying the troops, you know. The thing about DACA is that we are by far the most vetted group here in the United States. Every two years, we have to subject ourselves to a background check. A simple misdemeanor can kick you out of the program, and not renewing the program on time can kick you out of the program. So most of us are required to have at least a high school education, uh, most of us active, actively engaging, you know, politics, uh, the program itself, have at least, you know, an associate's bachelor's degree or higher education. Honestly, there are far better qualified DACA recipients than me. There are doctors, there are, you know, central workers out there, teachers that, you know, are showing, hey, this is what I've been accomplishing with just this, you know, work permit. But the thing is, Fully eliminating DACA, not having a substitute for it that would lead into citizenship is pulling the rug out under us. I don't know if the system's ready to do it. The thing is, even though this administration may not enforce the portability on the on, on us DACAs once we lose protection, you know, some of these entities within, you know, DHS, such as ICBP. So some of these guys, you know, play by their own rules. And so what is to say that, you know, you you go near San Isidro or pass a checkpoint going to L.A. or to, you know, other border cities and you no longer have this? Well, you're subject to being detained and you're subject to fighting it out in front of a judge. Some of these entities, again, play by their own rules, can simply lie to you, do other other things that would maybe force you to sign away your right to see a judge and just deport you. And, you know, I've only wow. been to Mexico once, and that was in 2015 through advanced parole issued through DACA. And it, you know, even though I, I got these feelings of like, oh, this is where I'm from, again, it wasn't home for me. So 
you know, in the DACA program, there's about 600 to 800,000 recipients. You know, all of them, all of us came here as children. So all of us see this place as our home. So what's going to happen when, you know, you get 1%, 2%, 5% of, of this group in a place that they don't, don't truly know in a current environment where violence is, is rampant. So it's going to be a chaos. It's going to be chaotic and we're going to fight it here, you know? Yeah. Can you walk us through, I think there's a lot of miseducation around the immigration process and what it takes to get there. I mean, we both mentioned we had someone tell us like, oh, just go get your citizenship. Like, you know, and it's like, no, not that easy. Can you paint some color and and explain what that process looks like? I know it's not straightforward, but would love to know kind of just high level what that process looks like. Absolutely. And before I begin, just disclaimer, I am not an attorney. This is not legal <laughs> advice. So within immigration law, there's uh well, within immigration, there's immigration law, there's policy, and there's officer discretion. So law, it really hasn't changed. The last thing I could remember is 245I in 2001, but everything is has been the same since the 90s. Policies dictated by who's in office. So how they implement the law. So, you know, when we had this Pelos de Lote from the previous administration, you know, he took it to the extremes. He said, hey, implement the law to the extreme. That's where you had the um, public charge rule being extended to your household. Whoever uses benefits, you know, your general health, your age could be used against you. And then officer discretion is, quien te toque, te toque. So you get the racist ICE officer, then they'll do whatever they want based on their opinion. But if you get someone who is more comprehensive, you know, they might let certain things slide. Within immigration, there are ways to legalize, whether it be a family-based petition, it could be an employment-based petition, and then there's special immigrant categories when you're a victim of, of a crime, victim of domestic abuse, things like that. I mean, they don't make it easy at all. There's outstand outstanding processing times. For these cases, you're talking about three to seven years on some of these. And it's not just like, hey, you have a citizen child, just have them petition for you. No, you have to look at the immigration code. You have to look at possible inadmissibilities. So inadmissibilities are kind of immigration crimes. They're really not equivalent to, you know, penal crimes, like violent crimes, but it's just based on the law change in the 90s where they're like, hey, simply living here, you know, it's an immigration offense, maybe bringing your children here or, or coordinating for them to come. Hey, that's alien smuggling, things like that. For that, I would recommend people to go and talk to, to an attorney to see the overall thing. But the thing is, there's a roadmap to follow. There are steps to be taken. And sometimes if you're missing that last step, you can't immigrate. And so it's not just, hey, you look like a good person. You've been living here. Just go get your papers. It's like it doesn't work like that. If it did, I I mean, I would be a citizen by now. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've been living here since 2000. Again, I, I've only been to Mexico in 2015 through advanced parole. Wow. How, what's the average... I know you can't answer all of these because you're not a lawyer and I don't want to get you in trouble. But what's the average time 
that it takes from uh, this is like again not a straightforward answer because i know that there's so much that goes into this but what's the average time from when someone applies for citizenship to when they actually get it so when you say citizenship there's an actual like process to be a citizen that's once you become a resident um you can apply for citizenship and that's usually five years after if you get your green card through a u.s citizen spouse and you get to qualify through an exemption that gets you there uh, within three years. If you're a legal permanent resident and you join the military, they can also kind of fast track your citizenship. But when you're talking about like legalizing, getting papers, being able to work here, leave whenever you want. I mean, it's just it, it can take years. There's been situations I've seen where, you know, their parent petitioned for their child back in, you know, 2000. But the kid was kid was already an adult over 21. Well, immigration says, since you're not a preference category, we'll approve your petition. But there's an additional 15 to 20 year wait for us to have a green card available to you. And even then, you still have to apply for a process. So what immigration says is you might be eligible to apply. The simple fact that you're applying for this benefit does not guarantee we'll give it to you. So there, there's like another thing where, you know, in within, you know, the realm of, you know, law firms and notarios, you know, we, we try to fight that misinformation because, you know, someone will say, hey, just give me 800 bucks or 500 bucks. I'll fill this out for you. You have a child. Yeah, you're, you're good to go. And then they end up going to Juarez and they're like, where's your waiver? Where's this other thing? Well, ni modo. Ahora te quedas acá. So wow. it's it's very important for each individual to get legal advice. I mean, most of this information is online. Uh, USCIS, which is a U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, does publish all of their guidelines, certain things. It's not as in-depth as, you know, sitting down with, you know, an, an attorney and getting getting that information pertaining to your case. But it's 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 not easy. It's not easy. Things change within the policy, as I said. So where I work, I I, um, I deal with waivers. In waivers, there's this notion of extreme hardship, and that is not something cemented. It's not like hey, you have a citizen, you have a you have a permanent resident spouse or parent, you're good to go. No, you have to argue how you leaving or being deported will be an extreme hardship to them. When the waivers were initially brought to the U.S. by then-President Obama, they were extremely harsh. They pretty much wanted the citizen to be bedridden, almost dying, to say, hey, we agree. Towards the end, he chilled out. Uh, when, you know, Cheeto came into office, he... I love uh, these nicknames. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he he uh, raised it up a bit more, but not as much as it was at the beginning of the Obama administration and then under Biden. It's, it's pretty mellow. But it's... It's, it's a very intricate process. You know, I, I, I do thank my education in engineering to kind of train me to, to re, you know, read and interpret certain things. When it comes to the actual immigration code, it's very logic-based. The thing is, we do not deal with logic-based theme. You know, at the end of the day, these are families. At the end of the day, something doesn't go right. It can cost them their stay here. It can cost them, um, you know, being deported. So, you know, these are very emotion 
filled cases. And for us, it's like, hey, we, we want to make sure that this person feels that comfort and that knowledge that, you know, we're going to guide them through this. Things are going to be okay. Obviously, you can't guarantee the outcome because you're dealing with an entity that has its own mindset and that comes to its own conclusions. But for me, you know, there are different levels of activism in my immediate circle. What I do is I make sure I'm currently a manager where I work, make sure that, you know, our actions, our professionalism take into consideration that we're dealing with people, people such as my parents, people such as myself. So in our professionalism, we will be kind to them. We will make sure that, you know, we answer their questions. And, you know, most of my staff don't really have that background. So making making ways for them to be empathetic to to our clients situation. Yeah. And empathy. And, you know, my parents love you so much because <laughs> they they know how much you empathize with them. And I mean, they were bragging about you before I even had this <laughs> body. They're like, oh, my God, he's going to be amazing. I can't wait to listen to it. But I think it's it's so powerful what you're saying because there is this logic side to it. And I, I always say that law is meant to confuse the, the average person. Like, I, I can't even sit down and understand what some of these documents mean. And I, I feel like they make it so hard to even understand this code. And you're talking about being an engineer and being able to understand it. Like, it's almost like you're unpacking this code for people and like you're adding some you're adding heart to it. You're adding heart to this really inhumane law that was created. And you said it hasn't changed since the 90s. Is that what you said? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Are you allowed to disclose how much money it typically is for this process for, for an average immigrant? Well, more or less, it, it depends on the steps needed to be taken. I mean, it's it's very... It can get very intricate, and what we do standard is uh, we request the people's records. Right now, we're at a time where the technology for immigration's there. They're consolidating a lot of their cases. So sometimes the issue for us, it's like we ask these people these questions. Have you ever been deported? Have you ever been arrested? They're like, no. And then it's like we pull the record. It's like what happened in the 80s, what happened in the 90s? Oh, you guys are counting that too? It's like, yeah, yeah, we, we, I mean, they, they are like, we, like, we really don't care, but, you know, we're not judging you in, in that sense, but it's like, they're seeing all of that. So it truly depends on, on a case by case basis. I mean, yeah. the reason why I've stayed where I work is, you know, the attorney himself allows payment plans. Not, not all uh, attorneys allow that. Um, it's usually, hey, pay me four thousand, five thousand, and then with inflation, things have you know truly gone up. So, I mean, specific prices, it depends on the case by case basis. And what we also try to see is, you know, ways to you know speed up the process, find ways of like adjusting in a different way. For example, we've had a couple of people who needed to go to Juarez, but because they have DACA and then a family member just got really sick, we can get them that permit to leave, they come back, bam, that's a legal entry. So they can then do the process here without having to leave. And you're looking at cutting down, you know, possibly two to three years of waiting. So 
uh, I mean, it, again, it's it's a case by case basis. It's just so it's so complex, and I I want to ask you because one thing I also hear a lot from the community is that some of these lawyers that are out there that exist are aren't really great people, and they don't have the empathy. They're there for the money, and it shows. How can one go about finding the right lawyer? What are some things to look for, some things to look out for? Mm -hmm. How can they go about that process? So, you know, when it comes to the law market, you know, the, you know, you can look people up on, on, on Yelp. You can look them on Google. But the biggest kind of marketing for any attorney is word of mouth. So speak to your peers, speak to the community, have these conversations, names will start popping up and you're not obligated to take your first option. You can, you can con consult, you know, for us, you know, depending on if, you know, we're doing free consultations or doing standard consultations for $60, you know, we're, we're listening to you. We're letting you know, we're, I, I tell people, we're not magicians. We don't want any any like surprises here, you know, we're, we're going to be blunt with you. We're going to tell you exactly how, what your case entails and the probabilities. And it's your choice. Obviously, if there's nothing to be get done, you know, let's just wait for a reform. Uh, be like, portate bien. don't do anything while that happens. But it truly is, you know, shopping around, talking to other, the, uh, a lot of these people. I mean, it's interesting because it's, you know, our parents' generations, you know, they 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 want to look for a good attorney. They always try to look for the old white dude. For some reason to them, it's, hey, this person knows it. And then yeah. it's it's sometimes not 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 true. You know, it sometimes is. But the thing is, ask around, shop around. What I would recommend people to avoid is avoid so let's say you've talked to three attorneys and they tell you no. You kind of start getting the idea of how to tell your story to get a yes. Uh, and that's when you start landing in hot water. Because, you know, it, it's not just saying, hearing that yes. It's like, you don't need a yes from, from a, an attorney. You need a yes from immigration. And so, you know, not being fully honest with your story can lead into, you know, Again, you landing in hot water is complicating your case even more because when you sign these forms, you're signing them under oath. You're saying that that is the truth. And so that's what I would say. Shop around, ask around, consult. Don't go with your first option. Just, just see what other legal professionals do. And, you know, I myself have had, have reviewed other cases from other attorneys and I've looked them up like in their respective state, like their bar license and, I recently uh, ran into this lady who's been practicing since 2000 and she did a simple mistake on this family-based petition and even in the approval notice it says, hey, you didn't specify this, now you have to do this other stuff and I showed my client and then he sends me a message saying, she's saying she did nothing wrong and I literally just took a picture of the approval notice and highlighted where it said and then the next thing he said, oh, she's going to refund me some of my money. So mm -hmm. again, it's truly getting different opinions. I, oh man, I love this topic so much because it's so needed. And thank you, Irving, for just speaking so freely. How, 
is there something that folks can do? Like you're talking about activism, you're talking about going to school for aerospace engineering to now being a full-time activist. How can people join you? How can we all be a part of this right. cause and make some noise and and be activists as well? So this is this is very important to me. I mean, I've seen it, I've lived it. It comes down to two things. Knowing who you are, knowing your personal story, because that will be your greatest tool when it comes to activism. I said, you know, there's forces at play, there's big money. I've seen it. I've seen the few lat some of the few Latinos that make it into Congress, they're alone. And, you know, over time you get jaded. You 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 start, you know, taking some of these super PAC monies. You start losing your way. And so, you know, when it comes to specifically Latinos in activism, in politics, it's knowing your story, knowing where you came from, being strong in that, not moving from from the what makes you you. Then the other thing is presence. You know, there's not met there's really not many of us out there. And it's not necessarily you being a, a House of Representative member or a senator or a governor. It's you being able being present in all kind of categories within activism. Let's say, hey, you've made it. Felicidades, mijo. And start using that money to fund, you know, these activism uh, activists. You know, do a super PAC that rewards, you know, people focusing on the Latino community. Donate to good causes. If, if you want to be a staff member, great. Make sure that you're telling your story, influencing your other non-Latino staffers of, you know, how you see things. Because, you know... The people we've talked to say, hey, just apply to, you know, uh, citizenship. They're within our community. But when we're talking about D.C., all these political spot, uh, places, they're within their own bubble. So, you know, it, it's truly being present, being present in, you know, all factions of democracy, even if you can't vote. I, knowing that I can't vote, what I've been able to do is I've been able to support local politicians. So, for example, in the 49th district here in San Diego, uh, we flipped it from a, from a Republican that had been sitting there for a while to, to a, a Democrat. When Bernie Sanders came to San Diego, I was able to introduce him on stage and tell my story to his audience. And so, you know, it's just, just being present and the thing is, we can't do this alone. I, I can't tell you the level of burnout I've reached. I mean, when it came down to COVID times, I was I was dealing with COVID, you know, managing the firm on top of that, waiting every Monday at six in the morning to hear what the court was going to say on DACA, having family members pass away. I mean, it's just, it, it, you can't do it alone. And I never intended to do it. I just intended to do my part. But you know, we need to be a community. We need to be more present. We're not just a group of votes to get at the end of the day. We need to use our leverage. We need to be present and make sure this change happens. You know, it's not just promises. We want them to fulfill our promises. If they don't want to fulfill their promises, then they need to get out of the way and we need to put our own people. I mean, when they say, hey, you know, these Mexicans are out here to get our jobs. Like, I don't care about any common job. I'm going to get your job in the Senate, in the House. And I think, again, presence, presence is important, but we need to be, we need to stay true 
to who we are. Yeah. You know, one thing that I heard from a member of our family who's older, viejito, he said, you know, despite any president that comes in, look at Sarah, right? Any president, he's he's been around here since the 80s. He's like, every president we've had, none of them care about Latinos. And it was a moment for me to just acknowledge his experience here of like, in this world of white, black, and you know, the two races that exist here and the brown coming in, like, there's not a lot of space for the brown and there's not a lot of noise for the brown. And I think maybe times are changing now and we're starting to make some noise. People are starting to know who we are. But there's still, I think what you've done in this episode is just educate us on these policies that are so outdated and none of it's changing because we don't have that representation and we don't have folks at the table. I mean, you're talking about a bubble. I can I can only picture what this bubble looks like. And I'm sure it doesn't always include people who look like me and you or the people that you're serving or the people that you're helping day in, day out. Um, and so I just want to thank you, Irving, again, for being here and, and educating us on these immigration systems and how we can all be just a 1% educator, 1% in, in, this, in this activism with you. Can you quickly give us, before we wrap up, this like like misconceptions of immigration or immigrants themselves and what you want. I mean, I, I just want you to educate us a little bit more on like the immigration experience, but what are some misconceptions that you just kind of want to like de- demystify right now? Right. I, I would say that I, I had that foolishness that I was going to make that change. I mean, I, I kind of forced myself into that mentality because, you know, You want to hit this with all of your might, but the thing is the problem, I wouldn't say it's bigger than us, but it's definitely a big ass problem. And we're (laughs) not, one person is not going to make the change. I mean, one thing is to see the issue. One thing is to feel it and truly know. I mean, we are on the similar plight as our black American communities, our, our brothers and sisters. And for me, you know, going to D.C. and seeing how they have the presence, they've been doing this, and yet we still see police brutality. We still see them suffering, them burying their children and their citizens, you know, truly puts into perspective what we as, you know, Latinos, as brown folk are are fighting. And, you know, for me, it was... There was a actually an album by the Gorillas called Humans that put it into perspective what it is, and specifically one of their songs called "You Know Let Me Out," where it's this young African American talking to this older one, and that's what you know we have here in our situation because we're estamos desesperados. We're saying like we want change, we want change now, yeah. And our elders are telling us, "Be patient." You know, they're telling us we've been through this road. And so, you know, it's not, I, I, I don't want to sound like a pessimist. It's not going to be a change that it's going to happen immediately. But the more of us that we're on it, the better, um, the better chances we have on actually like turning things around. But for on the topic of immigrants and immigration, I mean, you know, no, no situation is easy. 
for any one person. So consult with an attorney, see your options. The other thing is when it comes to domestic abuse, you know, immigrants fear that if, you know, they are subjected to domestic violence and they go to the police or do anything like that, the police will deport them or push them over to ICE. That is not the case. Victims here are protected. You're in no way obligated to, you know, stay with your partner if you are being subject to domestic abuse. Obviously, consult with an attorney and, you know, exercise your rights. Be truthful. Be truthful with with your background. It's, you know, it's not you against the attorney. It's, you know, you're trying to find a partner, a legal partner to to be on your side and, you know, get you where, you know, what you want to accomplish. And I mean, it's, you know, none of us are truly safe in this time and, and place. Even if we have a Democrat in office, even though, you know, we hold the Senate, you know, let's not get comfortable. It happened, you know, it happened to a lot of us during, you know, Obama's time. We got comfortable. We took a step back. You know, we we dealt with our lives. But next thing we know, we got this Pelo Zelote and he's just undoing everything with the snap of a finger. And so, you know, we have to make sure that these politicians are spending political capital and actually getting things done. No more promises. And again, just, just being engaged, uh, engaging in, you know, our community and all of these aspects of, you know, politics. Yeah. Oh man. I, I can't say it enough how thankful I am to have you on the platform. I want to wrap up this conversation with a brindis. And I've never done this, but I want to actually cheers to you. I typically ask the folks to to cheers and say what they want to manifest for the Latino community. But I want to quickly first cheers to you, Irving, and the work that you're doing and um, the empathy that you're giving these families, these immigrant families that I feel like there's a lot of people that don't understand their experience and me included. I'm Latina, but I'll never understand their experience of what it's like to be undocumented, what it's like to be an immigrant. And I just want to thank you for doing the work and why you're, why you're going through it at the same time, you know, which is not an easy thing to do. So cheers to you, Irving. Salud, Salud. Um, to the work that you're doing. But now I want to give you the space. What do you want to cheers to and what do you want to manifest for our Latino community? I mean, the thing I've always cheered for and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not just us. We're, we're going to get papers for all of us, including our parents. So I want to cheers to uh, the, 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 the first streamers, our parents, those who took the risks, those who paved the way for all of us to be where we are, you know, I just want to manifest that the legalization of, you know, the DACA recipients is is a first step. We have it clear. We know very well that the mission is papers for our parents. We can't just leave them hanging. I know that, you know, my parents at least have told me, I don't care. Uh, you know, it is what it is for me. We're doing it for you. But no, uh, absolutely not. It, it's for them. We'll end it there. Gracias, Irving. Salud. Thank Salud. you again for all that you're doing and hope that everyone who's listening learned a ton of about immigration, about DACA, and hope they continue to be curious about this work. Thank you. Thank you. 
big thank you to Evening for being a voice for so many dreamers and so many undocumented immigrants that are fighting for space in this country that they pay taxes for. Let's keep it real. If you or anyone in your family has any questions around immigration or are looking for a representative, a lawyer, someone to help you through this crazy immigration system, please reach out to Evening. His contact information is in the show notes. You can click the links and it'll lead you directly there. For all Hello Latino updates, follow Hello Latino Podcast. You can also follow me on my personal Instagram and find me on LinkedIn. My website, odalijasm.com, has more information, pero para ahorita, con mucho amor, tu amiga Andureña. Abrazos.